Welcome to Craig's Colorado Corner, taking on the toughest issues of our times, cornering the Colorado market on political and legal conversations. Craig Silverman, former Denver prosecutor, sets the table for smart panelists. Ladies and gentlemen, Craig's Colorado Corner. Oh, no. This is the show I never wanted to put on. We are at war. Israel is at war. When you use the word Israel, it means the people, the place, and the country. I'm part of the people, Israel, and this hurts like hell. My world is rocked by the events of Saturday. You heard about my Yom Kippur down in the Southwest. I thought a lot about the Native Americans as I drove back. And now the people in Israel are facing a revolt by a Native population that says, it's our land and you have no right to be here. They are led by Hamas, a bunch of rich guys who use the Palestinians, and they get them worked up with a combination of politics and theology and poverty and financial incentives and a promise of 72 virgins waiting if they can only kill a Jew. It could be a baby, behead a baby, and 72 virgins await you because you are now qualified. Now that's bad. That means Jewish people get their heads chopped off, and well over a thousand people in Israel have died because of that theology, ideology. We talk about it with Ken Toltz and John Jackson. This may be my most important show ever. It was lined up before we knew that on Simcha's Torah, uh, Shemini Atzeret, the weekend that culminates the high holidays, there would be a sneak attack. Jews should have seen it coming. It was 50 years ago. 50 years ago since the Yom Kippur War, I remember being a junior at GW. We went to Shul. It was a Saturday. We found out along the way on the radio, yeah, we're bad Jews. We drove. We listened to the radio, and we found out Israel was under surprise attack. And my brother was there, my older brother, Bill. He was 20. He was doing a junior year abroad at CU at Hebrew University. We were worried as hell. We heard from him, and thank God he was okay. But a lot of Israelis, not okay. A lot of Americans, not okay. 14 dead. Joe Biden, gosh, he spoke with power and vigor today, and I'm glad he's president. We talk about with all this with Ken Toltz, who grew up in southeast Denver like me, went to George, and he's a proud Jew who's decided to make Aliyah to Israel, He's our foreign correspondent there. You can learn a lot more about Ken on prior episodes. He's been a frequent guest. But my gosh, we've never had him from a war zone. He lives in Israel now. This is his war, and you can feel it in his kishkis, just like you can with John Jackson. What a great guest he is. John Jackson, who was featured on my prior show, 157. He went over to Ukraine to fight for freedom. He had a good life in Colorado, a smart guy, great looking. We did a Zoom call. He's amazing, and where he is right now takes so much courage and so much fortitude. 
It makes me embarrassed to do my little part, which is to put on this podcast. But honestly, I think this episode 175 with John Jackson and Ken Toltz. Learn more about Ken on my episodes 95 and 146. This may be the most important, impactful podcast I've ever put on, not because of me, but because of the circumstances, because Ken Toltz is incredibly articulate, and so is John Jackson. I'm so proud to know these guys, and I'm sorry that we have to go through this fight, this existential fight, not just for Israel, but for all of us. I really do believe that, and I've been witnessing this my whole life. I was a boy when the Six-Day War was fought and won. That was frightening. Then there was that Yom Kippur War that took quite a while, stressful as hell. Eventually, Israel prevailed, but the Palestinian issue was born, and I've seen that come and go, and I had a chance to cross-examine Jimmy Carter when he was pushing that Hamas was a group we could work with. Recall the history. Hamas was Israeli territory, but there were a lot of Native people there, and it was decided, hey, we'll give up this nice section of land. It's fertile. There are nice uh, lettuce fields, etc., greenhouses, Mediterranean, Mediterranean oceans right there. It's, I don't know, think about Manhattan, only about 10 times bigger, and right on the Mediterranean. So it was given to the people of Gaza, and all the Jews had to leave. And what happened? They got rockets in exchange. And eventually, they said, well, how about a democracy? How about you have an election? But elections aren't that simple, as we found out in America. The people were not conditioned well. People are subject to propaganda. Hamas ran. They won. They overwhelmed the PLO. And all of a sudden, you had an Islamist group taking over, one controlled by foreign reactionaries, Saudi Arabia, Iran. Iran hates Israel so much that they got on board with Hamas, even though they're Shia and Hamas is Sunni. They also had Hezbollah in the north in Lebanon, and they started a war before with Israel, not a full-fledged war like this. But it's been bad for a while, and I've opposed that Iran nuke deal. And every time I've moved toward a Republican, it's because I felt Democrats were capitulating on Iran and to Islamism and not being realistic when they say they want to kill Jews. Believe them. Don't give them power. Jimmy Carter vouched for Ismail Haniya, who ends up still being the leader of Hamas as they commit this atrocity. I hope he's a dead man, not Jimmy Carter. He's near death. In my Colorado Sun column, I had to rip him, but I did it to his face, or at least on the phone when I interviewed him, how memorable that was. It was a December show, a remote from Elway's in Cherry Creek. There were a lot of glad handers, but I was intense because I knew I had an opportunity to ask tough questions of Jimmy Carter. And rather than acknowledge that Ismail Haniyeh had gone to Tehran and pledged to uh, eliminate the Zionist usurper from Israel, from Jerusalem, the city they call Al-Quds in Iran. What's the claim of Islam to Jerusalem? Well, they claim that their prophet Muhammad, he had 
a vision in the night, and he rode a white horse named Barak, and he ended up at the Temple Mount, and he met a lot of dignitaries, and then he flew back, and that's their claim. And you could say, well, that sounds kind of ridiculous, but people are dying over this. And Iran believes that they should be in charge of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the, the Temple Mount. And right there are the three great religions. When I went to Israel, I saw it. I'm no expert on Israel. Ken told says. But I saw how these three religions all are like a long par five dog leg. It's all right there, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, Temple Mount, and uh, the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. What's going on now is a tragedy on a par with the destruction of the temple, my God, 70 AD. And that's around the time of the fall of the Roman Empire. Are we about to fall as an empire? America is going to take Israel's side. Thank you, Joe Biden, who said it unequivocally. And whereas I could put up barely with people, you know, running Biden down, don't do it anymore, please. We're in this war together, and I'm on the side of a lot of people who I've been castigating. I listened to Megyn Kelly and Ben Shapiro, and I found myself agreeing with a lot of what they had to say. And I don't like what people on the far left are saying. Apologists, the squad, people who took to the streets in support of Palestine. No, come on. Figure out what's going on here. The guys who know about these atrocities, Ken Toltz. Follow him on Facebook. Go to his Twitter page. We talk about staying on Twitter and Elon Musk. That's another good discussion. John Jackson, I just can't admire that man enough. It was good to see him and interact with him. And I'm telling you, if they make a movie out of his life, he's handsome enough to play himself. And he's younger than me and Kenny, even though Kenny's younger than me too. But the bottom line is that what can we do as older Jewish men now in America? We're trying to figure that out. This podcast of mine is one such effort. I think you'll be really educated and informed when you listen to Ken Toltz and John Jackson. I know they made a great impact on me. Thanks for listening. These are tough times. Let's stay with it together. And by the way, if you want to sponsor this show, which was dedicated to fighting MAGA and autocracy as opposed to freedom and democracy, but that's still what it's about. And I can't thank Michael Bailey and my other sponsors enough. If you want to get involved in sponsoring this kind of show, you know where to find me. It's like Deion Sanders. I'm not hard to find. It's important to be able to talk about these things. I think a lot of it is interrelated, as you will hear with our excellent discussion. Sorry for the circumstances, but I think you'll get a lot out of this impactful episode 175, Craig's Colorado Corner with Ken Toltz from Israel and John Jackson from Ukraine. Thank you. Craig's Colorado Corner is made possible by the sponsorship of Michael Bailey Law Offices. Michael Bailey is my lawyer. He's the best estate planning lawyer. He can come to you or you can go to one of his several Metro Denver offices. The number to call, 720-797-8988, 720-797-8988. 
8988. He will get the job done. He also wants to support a show like this. Thank you, Michael Bailey. If you want to be a sponsor, let me know. I'm easy to find. I'm Craig at CraigsColoradoLaw.com. Craig at CraigsColoradoLaw.com. This is my episode 175. That's kind of a big number, and it's a Craig's Colorado Corner episode worth remembering. Through my years doing this podcast, I've developed some foreign correspondence. Now, Ken Toltz, I've known since George Washington High School. He is a great guy from Denver who now lives in Israel. John Jackson, I got to know over Twitter, and I liked what he had to say, and we corresponded, and he he went to serve in the armed forces of Ukraine, and that's where he joins us today. This is an epic Colorado panel discussion with my foreign correspondents, Ken Toltz in Israel. To find out more about Ken, check out my episode 95 and 146. And John Jackson, episode 157, because we're not going to do a big bio right now other than to ask you, Kenny Toltz, you look so good, we're doing this on Zoom and you are recording it. You are in the land of Israel and you just withstood the start of a big war. Um, Tell everybody where you are and how you are doing. Yeah, thank you very much, Craig. It's uh, really nice to be with you. And John, it's really nice to be with you. Um, thank you, Ken. The last few days have been an emotional roller coaster that's on a moment by moment basis. Uh, Saturday morning, I was out, which I usually do, you know, Shabbat in Israel. Um, and I, I like to take a morning bike ride from Herzliya, where I live, which is on the coast, down to Tel Aviv and back. Uh, it's it's about an hour bike ride, and I was out at 8 o'clock, and I got a text message that I stopped to check that told me that my uh, tennis game for that later that morning was canceled because the club was closed because of the security situation, and I didn't know what they were talking about, so I went on my phone and found out that there had been an um, invasion over the south border of Israel from Gaza that was currently underway at the moment and that there had been over 2,000 rockets that were already fired towards Israel from Gaza. That's how I at first got the news. And uh, Craig, you remember because we talked about this two years ago, there was a rocket attack from Hamas in May of uh 2021. And that's what Israelis had become accustomed to. And sadly, there's been four of those uh, times that Hamas rockets have been fired from Gaza into Israel. And Israel has this amazing technology called Iron Dome, which actually tracks and destroys over 90% of the rockets launched from Hamas. And as a result of that, I think Israelis have become complacent. I know I have and thought, well, this is just going to be one of those rocket attack 
mornings and maybe it's going to ruin the day, but nothing more to worry about. But as the day uh, wore on and the news started to be reported of what was actually happening down there, which is about uh, 60 miles from where I live, it became apparent that this was something that basically you'd say your worst nightmare. And uh, what we've come to find out since then is over a thousand Hamas uh, military militant terrorists had broken through the security barrier and had uh, gone on a murderous spree to the communities that surround that part of the country, which are mainly small towns and, uh, you know, er the, the communities that we call kibbutz, kibbutzim. Again, we didn't know the scale of what was happening at the time. We just knew that this was something unprecedented and extremely scary and upsetting. Um, you know, now it's three days later and the news has been covering what's happened. And as I've been saying to people, it's been relentlessly awful news coming out every, every hour. Uh, the number of people that were killed, the number of people that were confronted by terrorists doing, going about their day to day lives, thinking that they were secure is by far by far the worst attack that's ever been experienced by Israel. And people here are saying this is Israel's 9-11. But by scale, it's actually much, much worse than Israel's 9-11. And the barbarity and the sheer inhumanity, the brutality of what these people did, these Hamas people did, is on a scale I, I, I can't even describe how bad it is. So now what we're doing is beginning to share the information about who was killed, who's still missing. And as you know, they took hostages. Yes. Just families, children, older people. And nobody knows. Uh, there's still hundreds of people that are unaccounted right. for. Yes. Don't know if they're dead. You use the proper phrase, relentlessly awful. And I think everybody's following the same news to the extent that we can. But when you asked a good question, you know, who could imagine the scale of this? And, and that might be a good entree to John Jackson, who's an American with Colorado connections, who saw what happened in Ukraine. I'm thinking about the town of Buka, right? What the Russians did there. And I wrote a Colorado Sun column this morning about Putin showing the way and probably being in on this. John Jackson, you know a lot more about this. You're laying down your life for, to me, the, it's similar atrocities against innocent people. How does this uh, war in Israel feel from where you are in Ukraine? Uh, you know, what it feels like is... You know, the toleration of evil begets evil. Uh, that all, And, you know, right now I can tell you I'm near a town of Izium where they found more mass graves of 400 plus people. To give you an example, um, I'm staying in a house where uh, no water, uh, some electricity. As we get rotated to the front here in a couple of days, I am now 10 miles from 100,000 Russian soldiers, armor, tanks, everything else, uh, air raid alarms every 30 minutes. 
you know, uh, pretty much all night, most of the time. Uh, in this house I'm staying in, the owner was just temporarily before we go to the woods and stuff is the owner's wife was raped. All four dogs were shot. He was tortured and he's dying of rectal cancer from, um, they think related to the stress in Germany. The neighbor's son was held in a basement um, and he died. And then the neighbor after that uh, is another house. And, you know, it's just full of gunshots. You know, people go missing uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. They found in a mass grave out here. You know, I, I, I do, I see this connection because you're talking about the most shocking crimes you can possibly imagine. It almost, uh, it shocks the conscience for sure, but it's, when you have uh, organizations like Hamas, when you have organizations like the the Russian army, where war crimes and genocide and everything, it's almost vulgar to even describe, even if you use normal words, um, is is a pattern and practice of how they conduct foreign policy, how they conduct uh, you know their relations, and they dare the world to step up and stop it. And, you know, in this town, I'll give you an example. If you need to drive through, the first thing you'll see is our apartment blocks that are, these are apartment blocks with hundreds of apartments that were hit with 500 pound laser guided bombs. You know, just the people just go on. We don't really have air defense out here. Uh, we have some, but most of it's focused in Kiev and other, other cities. But, you know, just the other day outside Kyrgyzstan, which is 45 minutes from here, um, they shot a cruise missile. This is a multi-million dollar weapon that's, you know, a, we all know what a cruise missile is, but it's it's meant for you know advanced warfare between you know NATO and near peer type adversaries. They used a multi million dollar weapon on a funeral of a guy who was reburying his father who was had died in the war. So a father had joined the military right away after the initial invasion. His son had joined the military. The father had died, and they were reburying him in his hometown. They killed fifty one out of three hundred people in a village who were just at a funeral. So. It feels very similar, and it, you know they're both evil in its own way, and where our hearts are with the victims, and it's it's chilling to hear the descriptions here today. But I really think this is, is yet another challenge to to the people of the world who want to be civilized. Um, very dangerous times, and uh, the same things are happening. And we have to step up and, and really call the people out, hold the people accountable, who need to be held accountable. Right. Thank goodness that Hamas doesn't have that weaponry, but other people do. And I asserted that I smell Russia behind this. I also smell Iran. Your point about these atrocities against innocent people, could this happen to that extent in Israel? And how will the United States respond? I don't know, but these are the right questions because we've let it get too far in. And so, Ken, back to you. You and other people have alerted me that normally, and I... I, I tried to get out my emotions in my Colorado sun piece. And I said, let's focus on Hamas. I, I had the occasion of questioning Jimmy Carter back in the day when he was running down Israel and palling around with Ismail Hamia, who was the head of Hamas. And I said, what's up with that? The guy was just in Tehran saying, that they're going to take Jerusalem and kick out the Zionist usurpers. And he accused me of making things up. Next thing you know, the Carter Center employees resigned, saying Jimmy Carter's gone off the rails. I don't like to throw dirt at a guy who's almost dead and did a lot of good things, but it goes to John's point. Once you 
allow an organization that says in its charter, hey, we want to kill Jews. If you allow that, if you allow Putin to be in civilized society when he says, I'm going to take Ukraine, no, that doesn't go. And now the recriminations are going on. Back to Putin for a second, Kenny. Are you guys thinking about Iran and Russia as you sit there in Israel? Uh, I've certainly heard analysts uh, suggest that there's a link with Russia through Iran, just as you mentioned. In fact, some feel that this action wouldn't have taken place without their knowledge and approval. It's a little early for that kind of analysis right now when the um, emotions are so raw as bodies are still being found and atrocities are being uncovered. I, I just want to say, John, that all year long and all of last year, it was so painful for me to see what was happening in Ukraine. Uh, there are many Ukrainians who have left and come to Israel. Uh, there are many Jewish uh, Russians who have left and come to Israel because they're scared to death to continue to live in Russia, given uh, what Putin is willing to do to anybody that even suggests that what's going on there is a war. So we've we've been, uh, at least the people have been very aware. We've also been somewhat disappointed in the government that hasn't stepped forward to provide a, a full support for Ukraine. But I, I think the days of this government are numbered. Craig, you know, I'm, I'm never hesitant to wait in. Yeah, and I, I don't want to interrupt you, but I just want to tell you that uh, I want you to know that, that, you know, the people in Ukraine, um, you know, when we say we have, we have a Jewish president and when we get in the term Nazis around so much, um, and uh, there's even telegram channels where, like, any soldiers like me, they call them track a Nazi mark, you know. And and I feel a closeness to Israel and its people in this time of trial. And I know that, to me, this is – there's an anti-Semitic, very strong component to Russia's invasion, I feel. Just the way they've misused the Nazi term and, and attacked a Jewish president who's turned out to be a great Churchillian leader. So, um we feel the support of Israel, and there's many, many uh, Israeli troops that are actually uh, fighting here. So I, I appreciate those kind words. I just wanted to say that. And that was beautiful. And, and just can I say that I put a lot of trust in Zelensky. I don't know the guy. I'm not in Ukraine. But his statement in support of Israel was unequivocal, fast, and beautiful. I'm sure you saw that, Ken. Yes, Yeah. Uh, exactly. And I was really speaking on behalf of the people of Israel, not the government of Israel which has has a complicated situation with Russia because our border with Syria, where there is a huge Russian presence fighting alongside the Assad government. And uh, Israel's Air Force has been operating in Syria with the full cooperation of the Russians. So they've always been hesitant on a, on a top governmental level to be too critical. I don't, I don't know how this... The events of October 7th are going to impact Israel's foreign policy. But what I was actually starting to say, and I, I really appreciate what you said, John, was that the failure of this government is breathtakingly hor- horrible. And I'd be surprised if this Bibi Netanyahu government lasts the rest of the year, let alone maybe even the rest of this week. The people are so besides themselves because, and I've, I've been writing this as well, the national security team has been warning Netanyahu all year long 
about the damage to preparedness of the military due to his divisive, what he calls judicial reform initiative. Now we found out what damage to preparedness means. If you can't, if you, if it takes you hours to respond to an invasion of the border, hours and hours to respond, and you had no idea this was coming, and the the failure uh, that has and the cost in human life is astronomical. It it will never be forgiven. It will never be forgotten. And it hangs squarely around the neck of Benjamin Netanyahu. Absolutely. And uh, Kenny, you're writing for the Jerusalem Post and other publications. How big a deal was it when Haaretz published that house editorial condemning Bibi? I held back because I thought maybe it's too soon. Did you think it was too soon? Were you surprised or was it, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures? Yeah, no, I, I amplified it because I'm amazed that Israelis aren't marching on Jerusalem to demand this guy get out of office this minute. You know, the amount of raw emotion, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to remember 22 years ago what 9-11 felt like. We say in Israel what's like our 9-11, but emotionally, we, you know, we've recovered. And Israel is at the very, 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 very earliest stage of just becoming aware of the atrocities that were committed and the brutality. And we're at the very, 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 very early stages of the grieving process. So I think it's too early to to know how long it's going to take, but I think it's pretty widely felt that the failure is on the part of the government and the institution of the Israel Defense Forces as well. Yeah, I used to like Bibi, but he He's corrupt, and that's a problem, and he's under three indictments, and I'm in the criminal justice world. If you get charged with a crime, it takes all your focus. They want to lock me up? No way should any company be led by a guy in that situation, let alone a country. So wise up, people. Jewish people need to be smarter than that. I also don't like the way Bibi pals around with Putin, like a certain former president of ours, and what did they say, et cetera? And as the Jewish state, when he saw what was happening in Ukraine and Syria and the various atrocities by Russians, for a Jewish guy not to speak up about that and take sides, well, it goes back to John Jackson. And when you let that go, look what you get. John, I'm just stunned by what I'm hearing out of uh, you, it sounds like the beginning of Inglorious Bastards. It's, and, and, and when they did call Zelensky a Nazi, that was the total insult and just outrageous. Absolutely. When you get here, and I was walking down the street the other day, for example, and there's a, a piece of paper taped to a telephone pole. So back home here in Colorado, you'll see like, you know, there's a concert or if you like, you know, buy old homes for cheap or something like that. Here, what you have is a public service announcement with a grenade inside the washing machine, you know, where you put in the detergent. And it was a warning because this town was occupied several times and fought over viciously in this war, um, finally retaken by Ukraine in the Kharkiv offensive in September of last year. And it's warning people, don't open drawers 
uh, or be careful when you open drawers of your washing machine because there's probably a good, there's a good chance of being grenade in there as a booby trap. Mm. Uh, and it's stuff like that. It's uh, you know, in, in 2014, we didn't. There was the invasion. The world really didn't do much. And right after the Maiden Revolution, uh, Maiden Uprising, and, and you know, it, it, I think we're finding that fears of escalation lead to more escalation. And I think you see also with you know, talking about the Middle East and Israel, I know it's Syria, but it's right next door. And, you know, Obama's red line. Um, I like Obama looking back on him. I did not vote for him, but uh, I do respect him and, and admire him now um, for sure. Probably should have voted for him. Uh, but, you know, the gassing of Syrian civilians and they crossed the red line. And, you know, what, there weren't any consequences. And these people just push and push and push. And then obviously the Donald Trump years and the, the Jared Kushner foreign policy. Uh, was clearly a disaster, uh, except for lining his pocketbook with a uh, uh, Saudi money. Apparently, um, so you look back, and it's it's rarely one thing that leads to catastrophe. It's it's multiple things over time. And I just uh, you know, right now we've got some mutual suffering of the Ukrainian and, and Israeli people, and I, uh, I I think it's it's important that we I, and I do see Israel as is a moral guiding light of the world. Um, I'm not Jewish. I'm Presbyterian, but you know that's uh, actually recently before I came here, I visited the uh, Museum of uh, Jewish History in Poland and saw the, the horrors of the Holocaust, sort of up close. Um, saw the some of the constant concentration and death camps on the way to Ukraine, and it's time. I, I think these two countries are going to stand up and help the world change. Yeah, I hope so because the battle is being waged there. I, I can't help but go back to Russia and think about what they're doing to Ukraine and their uh, just Putin's role. You know, it was his 71st birthday on Saturday, Ken. And uh, I, again, I, I can't see Iran or Hamas doing this without some Russian involvement, Russian money. And Ken, you're a Democrat, uh, lifelong. And Barack Obama got brought up, but he ran against Mitt Romney. And one thing I liked about Romney was he said, our number one geopolitical foe is Russia. And it turns out he was pretty darn correct about that. Have you had to reassess your politics at all now, Ken? I know it's so early, but just back to Jimmy Carter and his embrace of Hamas saying that these people who say they want to eradicate Jews that, that we can work with them. Wasn't he misguided about that? Good question. Um, actually, what I wanted to do before I answer that question is for people who for people who don't know what Hamas is, I think it's worth a little bit of background to explain. There are two broad political sections of the Palestinian population that uh, surround Israel. That's mostly about 90% are Islamic Muslims, and about 10% are Christians. Gaza is completely geographically separate from the West Bank. It has a, a, a border, long border with Egypt, and there, the formation of Hamas was an uh, offshoot of the Egyptian Islamic Brotherhood. So it's a fundamentalist Islamic movement, and this uh, what we're seeing is it has morphed into something like ISIS, which we know all the atrocities that ISIS committed under the banner of Islam. 
which is basically kill the infidels. Yes. And as far as they're concerned, uh, Israel and Jews just need to be killed. Right. Now, we, we always, you know, we read these statements and we read their charter for all these years. And what you're going, going back to Jimmy Carter, the Hamas charter has been uh, public for a long, long time where they've made it very clear their goal is the elimination of Israel. But I think until just a couple of days ago, when we actually saw what that meant as it translated into terrorism, it means killing children, teenagers, older people, families, anywhere they could find them as quickly as they could, and brutalizing others, kidnapping them and brutalizing them. And there's been lots of reports of uh, sexual assault as well. And this is their this is their reason for existence to do these kinds of activities. Uh, and you know, defensively, the United the United States has been a huge backer, as you know, of Israel and supplied uh, a huge amount of money that Israel has used to secure the borders, which we thought were secure, and now we know. Mm-hmm. We definitely know about the, the border with Gaza is not secure. And there were 7,000 people who were in communities living in the, in the vicinity. And if the numbers are correct, over 10% of them were killed in this activity on Saturday. It's, a, it's really mind-blowing, the statistics. Yeah, it's just an untenable situation. And just to drive home your point about how Hamas grew out of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, I'm an Al-Zwahiri, right out of Egypt, Muslim Brotherhood guy. He was a role model. Of course, he became the second Osama bin Laden. And when bin Laden knocked down the towers and tried to wreck America, Hamas cheered it, right? And uh, it's been obvious. So why couldn't we see this? We're supposed to be as smart as Jews. How unsustainable has Gaza been? It, it just has been, Kenny. Anyway, but we're dealing with, you know, you know, it's like I tell my kids, World War II is pretty easy, right? The last kind of black and white conflict. Well, we're in one again. And we don't have to debate the plight of the poor Palestinians, this or that. Hamas is a genocidal crew, just like the people attacking Ukraine. They are evil incarnate. So that's the realization. And, and I'll tell you, the problem for me is as I realize that and there's We'll get to the politics in America, or maybe if you want, we can right now, because it feels like it affects it. But when I see any Democrats on the side of Hamas, it it makes me crazy. I'll throw it to you, Ken. You're the lifelong Democrat. How do you react to that? Because it's always pushed me to the right, toward a Mitt Romney type. You know what I mean? Well, I would actually refer you to President Biden's statements over the last couple of days. Uh, He's beautiful. You know, President Biden is, in his heart, understands Zionism and the Jewish people and the need for Israel to be an independent state. And I've known him for over 40 years myself since I worked in Washington. And he represents the Democratic Party. A couple of fringe members of Congress do not represent the Democratic Party. And, you know, there's fringe Democrats in Colorado as well, who I've been very harshly critical on social media in the last few days for the statements that they've posted. So 
we we do have a a tiny and this is what i've said in the past to media there yeah there's a tiny completely influential segment that are democrats who are uh consider themselves progressive but they're not progressive they're regressive and just like you know hamas they have to be confronted they have to be rejected and they have to be rooted out but they don't represent the democratic party they represent some people who are managed to get themselves elected. John, if I could throw it to you, I wanted to bring up some good news. The fact that Joe Biden is the president right now. Thank God he's in office as opposed to the former guy. May he never be in office again. But Joe Biden to me is on the right side. He could do more in Ukraine. He's on the right side. I think he feels Israel and his kishkas. And the attacks on him by the other side, that he's taking a nap instead of dealing with the situation, it's horrible propaganda. Putin could not write it better. What's your reaction to Joe Biden? Is he doing a good job, and should he do a lot more? Yeah, so if I'm glad that Biden is in power. He's done a good job, um, and I believe he's a good and authentic person. If you had... The look at the catastrophe that the Republican Party is right now, uh, and the you know so-called freedom caucus. They're anything but freedom uh, oriented in the House, and we have no Speaker of the House, so we can't even introduce you know funding and legislation and things like that. I, this is, I mean, this is an endemic problem with these Republicans. I, I don't know if it's performative politics or how you want to phrase it, but they are just utterly incompetent. And the, the, the government in their hands, the, the, the extent of the government that's in their hands is, and not only is, put aside the pro for a second, they just can't even govern. Kevin McCarthy, for all his flaws, did come to Kiev and huddle with Zelensky. And I, I'm worried that over half that caucus is opposed. Kenny, uh, you are a political pro. I'm sure you are studying this and prepared to talk about its consequences on Israel we arranged this show before we knew what was going to happen on Saturday. But how does American politics affect what's going on in Israel right now? You know, Craig, there's always been an isolationist wing of the Republican Party. Um, it's in ascendancy now. More and more are sitting in the U.S. House of Representatives. These people, when they say America first, they mean America alone. And they have no clue about America's responsibility as a, as a leader of the free world and, a, and the leading democratic country. So uh, it's similar, you know, politically, as I said about the faction of the Democrats, they need to be defeated. They need to be confronted, rejected, and defeated. That's the only uh, solution, because if they ever get power, all bets are off as far as our relationships, international relationships. And I, I think John put it very well. They don't have the ability to govern a PTA meeting, let alone the United States government. And there, that was on display just a week ago when they, that circus on the House of Representatives to vote this, their speaker who hadn't even been in office for a year out. But let's puzzle this out because I don't think it was random because I think Matt Gates never makes that motion if a guy from Mar-a-Lago calls him and says, no, don't do that. But he had the tacit approval of Trump, who wants chaos. Just like I say Putin wants chaos, too. 
I don't think Hamas makes this move without the approval of certain people. And that it's all by design. And now he's backing Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan, whose first statement is, I'm going to pull the rug out on Ukraine funding. John Jackson, how did that make you feel? Well, I, you know, that's, uh, I have trust that things will pass and that the adults in the room will, will prevail. But um, yeah, I mean, listen, Jim Jordan is not a, this is the person who ignored the sexual assaults going on in in, in Ohio. Uh, very troubling history with that. Uh, he is just a he's a hand puppet for Trump. And if they want Trump to if Trump wants him to try to defund uh, prosecutions, and I'm sure Jack Smith would work for free, he'll do it. Um, I mean, the, the parallels between Putin and Trump, um, and to some respects, maybe to a lesser degree, uh, Netanyahu at least with the, the corruption allegations. And seeing what happens when you have those kinds of people who are so focused on themselves and power uh, in control, even if they're not even in, in running the government. Like Trump's not running the government here, but he's sure is causing a lot of chaos. Uh, it's it's pretty scary. I you know I do. They're they're planning to pass a final supplemental of fifty to hundred billion dollars. You know I trust on my brothers here on the ground. We're well equipped for now, and. Um, you know, I, I believe this war will be over hopefully by spring of next year. Um, so I believe in us. I believe nothing can defeat us. But yeah, I mean, if people like Jim Jordan, if they only understood and knew, if they saw what I saw for five minutes, there's no possible way they would they would would do this. But they're just immature sock puppets for the the crazy right at this point. Well, I used to brag on Jewish people being smart, but I'm not so sure. And I'm not so sure about the Jews in America, the Jews in Israel, but at least the Jews in America, Ken Toltz, rejected Donald Trump pretty vociferously. But for a while there, he was very popular in Israel. It always made me sick to see his name spelled out in the Hebrew. How about you? Is the guy still popular there? Please tell me Jews are smarter than that. Well, just it, it made me sick to my stomach to see Bibi Netanyahu's huge campaign posters with him and Trump together and him and Putin together. That's how he campaigned for the prime ministership just a couple of years ago, uh, nauseating. And there was a segment of Israelis who felt Trump was a great friend of Israel because Netanyahu kept saying it over and over again, the best friend in the White House we've ever had. And uh, yes, he made the decision to move the U.S. Embassy officially from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which has accomplished absolutely nothing for anybody, except there is a, a new plaque on the building that is in Jerusalem where the U.S. consulate used to be that now says embassy and, and with Trump's name on it, of course. So it was really difficult for me to see Israelis. And I, I was one of the people who was always saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. This guy is an agent of chaos, just as you said. And I, I was thinking when you said that, Craig, that nothing was more obvious about January 6th than Donald Trump getting exactly what he wanted, which was chaos at the United States Capitol to try to stop the counting of the electoral votes. And his response right now to everything is more chaos, more chaos. His trials, the charges against him, he goes to court, tries to create chaos there. On the campaign trail, he tries to create chaos. But it's shocking to me that he is so popular with such a large segment of Americans 
who just can't seem to quit him. And that's what's, that's what's truly frightening. You know, I, I've been saying 74 million Americans voted for Donald Trump with their eyes wide open. And most would probably do so again, given the chance. Right. And, uh, on the campaign trail, he's telling jokes. He was dancing. Who was dancing when you discover what's been happening in Israel? Who feels like dancing? He does. And I think Putin benefits from a Hamas attack on Israel. John Jackson, doesn't this help Putin? It takes U.S. attention away from Ukraine, the world's attention away and don't you worry that Ukraine will now be ignored as the world focuses on Israel? Yeah, I, you know, I think that's, I mean, how, how quickly after these attacks and Israel's expected response, which is a normal and appropriate response, the only morally justifiable response that the government of Israel can make to its people, that there was, your comparisons made trying to say there was hypocrisy between Ukraine in Israel, meaning people were trying to say that, oh, well, you know, uh, it's okay when, you know, Israel attacks the West Bank, but it's not okay when Russia attacks. You guys are hypocrites. I mean, and then you have like this whole ecosystem of ridiculous right-wing conspiracy theorists on um, Twitter now, and that's all part and parcel of the sort of Putin disinformation regime, which may only be rivaled by the a victimhood um, disinformation machine that you see come out of the Gaza Strip and, you know, the very same people uh, who use the, the Gaza people in Gaza uh, have been holding them hostage as a terrorist government. That's what Hamas is. They haven't held elections at least since 2007, you know, trying to say, uh, oh, look, Israel responded. Well, of course they responded. What did you expect? You knew this was, they were going to respond. And it was, I believe it's a two part campaign kill Israelis, and then try to play the victim. Can I make an attempt at bad Colorado humor here? Because do you remember how Hamas got elected? Kenny, you will, right? It was under the Bush administration. Ariel Sharon gave it back, and they said, we're going to have a democracy here. A lot of people said they're not ready for an election. It might be one and done, which sure enough it was. But who was in charge of that for Bush? As I recall, it was Condoleezza Rice. Who's Condoleezza Rice in charge of right now? The Denver Broncos. See, these things don't work out that well. Kenny, you remember all that history, right? <laughs> That's a, that I didn't realize that, but you're you're right. What I what I was thinking as you were describing that situation back at that time, you know, the the withdrawal of Israelis from Gaza in 2005 is still a hugely emotional sticking point for many, many Israelis who felt that that was a huge mistake. And um, and I'm glad you brought up that idea that, that we could have a democratic election among the, the, the people there, which reminds me of what happened in Iraq and George W. Bush, who thought we were going to have a democratic, uh, they were going to greet us with, you know, flowers and 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 so on, and then they were going to have a democratic government emerge. Uh, they, they have no democratic tradition. They don't care about democratic values. We care about democratic values, and we have a democratic tradition, and we seem to think that we're able to just kind of lay that over another uh, 
culture and society, and, and boy, is that proven to be totally false. Now, when you said we, were you talking as an Israeli or as an American? Because let me tell you, we're teetering on that issue in America with the peaceful transfer of power thing, right? In, in terms of demo- the protection of democracy? I'm just saying that you have about 70 million Americans who don't agree to the peaceful transfer of government in America. You know, it, it comes back to Trump and what he's doing. And his allies in the process, he's clearly buddies with the authoritarians. He likes the one-and-done theory of elections. You elect me once, I'm in forever, regardless. Just like my friend Vlad Putin is a very stable genius. And she, he praises him. I think that's the world that's about to be upon us unless people like John Jackson step up, young guys, a little younger than you and me, Kenny, who are out there fighting. John Jackson, does it come down to that? Doesn't Trump want to join the autocrat club and aren't a whole lot of Americans paving the path for him? No, absolutely. I, I think, um, I mean, I think there's, they've even, I announced that in not so many, uh, in oblique terms, and I, I, they absolutely want to do that. Uh, I mean, this is a guy, Donald Trump, who drives around with president of the United States. It's like he's still president. President of the United States emblems when he's playing on his going at his golf course on his shirts. Uh and and I, I think that uh his narcissism has become uh and is identical to uh the worst dictators of the world. You know, I having grown up in the South and being somewhat of a civil war historian, I think some of these when I look back at people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. So, you know, throwing around the term civil war. I mean, that was a turning point in our history where 700,000 Americans died in, in horrible ways uh, to become a better nation, to have a new birth of freedom, to give meaning to the terms of Thomas Jefferson's words. All men are created equal, not just all white men, uh, but men of all color, not just men, but women as well. And, and to see that thrown around in the threatening civil war so flippantly. It's just, it's disgusting. It's shocking. Um, and I think people not only fighting, but also there needs to be something I've been thinking about recently is, is more of a voice also for people who are in these hotspots, myself and others. Um, you know, there's a lot of Americans fighting here. There's a lot of foreigners fighting here. Over a hundred died here fighting to speak up against the, these things. I mean, again, you look at the disinformation and the fact that you have so many people following uh, on, on Twitter, people who just outright lie. Uh, you had Elon Musk. I don't know if you saw this, Craig, but he put out a tweet saying these are the two people, uh, yes. the OSINT, meaning open yeah. source intelligence mm-hmm. accounts you should follow about the Ukraine war. One of them had been openly anti-Semitic using, you know, Jewish slurs many, many times. And so they tried to delete his tweet. But um, you have all these people, you get a video shared on TikTok or Twitter, and it's a complete lie. It'll be something from Syria. And they'll say that it's Israel doing it to you know, uh, the West Bank now, and it, you know, instantly there's millions of views. And, and, and that's, I think, a huge threat, too, as well, uh, is the disinformation ecosystem that's come out of Twitter and some other social media uh, that is, is of a big concern. And the fact that people are just such unsophisticated consumers of information. Uh, I, I don't know how we, we rectify that or how that deep that goes, but it's, it's a huge problem. It goes to our education system. I, I came up with the term that the U.S. citizen is propaganda vulnerable. And and, and that's horrible. And part of it comes uh, out of the beast that I was in the belly 
Talk Radio and the Unchallenged Word. Now, I'm not much for conspiracy theories, but I am for those that have evidence to back them up. And you're a good student of Twitter, John Jackson, and that's how I got to know you. What an open, beautiful form of communication it was. And now an NBC report, and I kind of opined on this about a year ago when Musk bought it, that what is he doing? Fascists cannot abide Twitter the way it was. So is he sabotaging it? And the NBC said, yes, he will. Even down to blaming the Jews and the ADL. Remember that? And I don't believe that was just a coincidence. So I smelled something nefarious, maybe Putin involved, Trump involved, but Elon Musk. And let's go back to Jim Jordan and not forget that legendary tweet. Remember, they had their three gods, Kanye, Elon, Trump. That was a Jim Jordan tweet uh, tweet on behalf of the House Judiciary. They eventually deleted that after it came out that Kanye West was such an anti-Semite. But what are we still doing on Twitter? I mean, uh, you and I, hell, I DM'd you guys to set this up. It's such a beautiful mechanism. But sometimes I feel like I, I, I'm going to be in a gulag somewhere and they're going to give me my Twitter feed to read and say, is that you at Craig's Colorado? And uh, am I right to worry about that, John? I think, you know, there's this, they want us to leave. And I think it's, it's important to stay. And hopefully, I I think it's just going to take a lot of time and effort and a lot of, I don't know how we deprogram all the MAGA people, all the people who follow the knowingly follow disinformation channels, the bot farms. I mean, I can't tell you, you know, you can spot it after you've been up on there for a while, but um, Russia uses it. I, I think it's, I can't wait till the day when all those connections are uncovered. So I think we got to stay. We got to keep it up. But um, yeah, it's a pain in the neck for sure to, to deal with that and to try to flush it out. Kenny Toltz, you've used Twitter for years. What do you make of Elon Musk? Is he an enemy of Israel? Well, the, first of all, what I've said about Elon Musk is nobody has ruined brand value for a company as quickly as Elon Musk has when since he bought Twitter. They've lost billions of dollars of brand value. And you have to wonder, did he buy it to destroy it? Because that's what he's doing. I still use it. I still, I feel um, I'm effective using Twitter uh, on the basis of the people who follow me and, and the response that I get from the people who follow me. So right now, I feel like I still have to use Twitter. There's not an, another alternative. But we don't know where it's going. We don't really know what his true uh, agenda is. I, to me, he's he's got way too much money, way too much ego, absolutely a scary guy. And there's no one who can get in his way of doing whatever he wants to do with all that money, which is like if you want to make a comparison, just like MBS in Saudi Arabia. Nobody can get in the way of MBS Maybe he should buy the Broncos. Yes, yes. Some more. <laughs> well, and also fashion. remember, remember, Craig. I can speak to you operationally. I mean, there's the whole the whole fiasco with Starlink. I'm on Starlink right now, and now he tried to shut that down uh, because the U.S. government didn't have contracts for it. How there was active operations. I, I mean, there were innocent people who died because of Elon Musk, and the way that happened was uh, when he 
was allowing unrestricted use of it. Then all of a sudden, in the midst of operations in the Crimean Peninsula, uh, there was operations to take out the Black Sea Fleet, meaning uh, drones that would have, you know, knocked out ships that shoot cruise missiles into Ukrainian cities, like that funeral I talked about earlier near Kherson. And he interfered in those operations. And I guarantee you, at least 200 more cruise missiles were fired than would have been because of his removing Starlink, pulling the rug out, and actively interfering with um, those operations. And, I mean, the people got killed because of that, you know, women and children um, by the hundreds. And and so uh, it, it's terrifying. I mean, that's if you really think about it like that, it sounds extreme, but it's totally backed by facts. Uh, it's, it's shocking. I, I think that... If we all just stay the course, the stupidity of the, the MAGA right and the stupidity of Musk will, will one day, I think all this stuff will be revealed, but it's going to take consistent effort on our parts to to, to fight the disinformation machine and, and be against these people and call them out. Nice. Nice. That's what I feel I can do at my advanced age. Make some contributions. Kenny, what do the people of Israel need? What can we do right now? You know, I've been saying to people, every expression of support is deeply, deeply appreciated. So whether that is, you know, through social media, through making a contribution, through asking, how are you doing? I, I've been receiving loads of messages saying, we're worried about you, we're thinking about you, hope you're staying safe. And I, I, and I know all my, my friends are receiving those kinds of messages. They're very much appreciated. Here in Israel, because we have a failing government, the citizens are stepping forward. They're collecting all sorts of items for the people who are displaced down south. So there's ways to contribute to that effort. Some of the major Jewish organizations, as you know, typically will put together emergency funds. Jewish Federation of Denver, I know, is doing that. The anti, uh, not the anti-defamation, the American Jewish Committee is doing that. So I think express your, your solidarity in whatever way feels right to you. It's what's needed right now, and it's deeply appreciated. And a lot of the people are being housed down in the Negev, and Jewish Colorado has a connection down there, Ramad HaNegev, where they're housing exactly. a lot of children. So Jewish Colorado is a good place to go. Temple Emanuel was a great place to go last night as well. And and uh, I was there at Temple Emanuel, glad to be there. And uh, 2,000 people surrounding us. But I didn't hear a lot of answers. I don't know what the answers are. Let's turn to the military man, because I feel rage. Is rage a part of it, John, or do you just need to suppress that? You know, I think the the IDF is one of the finest militaries in the world. They're very professional. Um, I think, you know, they will know how to undertake what's necessary for for Israel, I, I think the IDF um, knows what to do. They know how to handle this. But I think that, um, and I think the Israeli people are strong. Uh, rage is certainly a part of it. And uh, I also think that there's a, almost a form of, you know, a resistance mentality that I've seen from a lot of the people in Ukraine. I mean, these are especially out east where a lot of the, the the fighting is these are already pretty hard people who are you know farmers who live with you know minimal means uh in harsh weather and have been used to lots of conflict throughout their lives and 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 what the russians have done i think 
if there's any two places on earth, any two peoples on earth who have been through a lot over the last 100 to 200 years, it's the Israelis, it's the Ukrainians. Uh, you know, Israel's tough. The Israelis are tough. They've been through the, the these days and, and worse days, and uh, they will show us how, how to lead. And, and there's a there's a brotherhood of suffering there. And, um, you know, God bless Israel. I, that's that's what I think. Uh, I guess in thinking about this, um, you know, if you want to talk about the military component of it, and I was going to ask you a question. I noticed some of the border guards that, uh, unfortunately, some of the videos of the the dead border guards. Um, my concern was I saw someone without body armor, and I don't know if there's going to be discussions about, you know, whether they had adequate equipment or, or not, because so much of Netanyahu had pulled away from the from the West Bank. And, and I'm sure all that will be looked into and investigated. But I just, you know, and I've heard stories, I don't know if they're true, about having to crowdfund for certain kinds of equipment and things like that. I just hope the troops, who are very professional, um, are, are as fully equipped and supported by the government is is they need to be that that's sort of the thing i think from a military perspective i saw and was was concerned about yeah well you're absolutely right john there has been reports of citizens having to go to military surplus stores and buy supplies for their kids because they didn't have them they didn't have they weren't available and they were sent they were called up what i really was thinking is that this is a test of a new generation so we think of Israel uh, from the, the most famous wars, but this generation, and I live among these people, they're a young, beautiful, energetic, freedom-loving generation. As you know, there was a music festival that was going on with, I don't know what the total number of teenagers that were down there, but it was kids. And they thought nothing of having an outdoor music festival a few miles from the Gaza border because we thought everybody was lulled into complacency that the border was secure. They never in a million years thought they were putting themselves in harm's way. They were there to celebrate, to be together, and to do what young people like to do at music festivals. So this is uh, totally eye-opening for everyone in that generation. And um, I think it's too early to know how that will affect uh, the generation going forward. We'd like, we'd certainly like to think that they will rise to the occasion like past generations have had to do, but we are way far removed from when Israel was really uh, existentially threatened by an army from Syria and an army from Egypt that invaded 50 years ago. Uh, one, of, one of the stories that I posted on social media, I just want to share this, Craig, because I've been using my Facebook page to post stories of amazing journalists who are, are writing amazing stories of survival. And I'd encourage anybody to go, and I mark them public so anybody can see them, to go to my Facebook page and read some of those articles of the survival stories and how these people survived. And in, in one case, it was because the father, who's a retired general, got in his car in Tel Aviv and drove down and joined up with some soldiers and helped them take back the kibbutz and rescued his own son and daughter-in-law and two young children under the age of four. Ken, I don't know how you do it. It must break your heart. But the old jock in me just gets angry uh, when I think about what they're doing to the women 
and these images. I can't take too much of it into the children. I mean, do you feel the rage? What are you doing with that? Well, I'm not showing it, but you better believe, yes, uh, it's it's an emotional roller coaster throughout the course of the day. And because of the time difference, you know, I'm getting a lot of messages overnight that I'm responding to first thing in the morning, and then I'm looking at the news. And, and most in the last three days, most of the businesses have been closed. Schools have all been closed. The streets are quiet. It reminds me of the very early days of COVID, right? And nobody really seems to know what's going to happen next and how it's going to uh, take place and occur. But we can hear the sounds of our, either artillery or bombs even 60 miles away and occasionally rockets being uh, shot from Gaza our way. I was at two air raid sirens. I had to go to the bomb shelter twice this afternoon just before we got on. But have you thought about your neighborhood being invaded? One of the ways uh, you came to fame, you ran against Tom Tancredo, and I've always admired your advocacy for gun control. Now you're in Israel in a warlike situation. The only time when I came off my position that a gun doesn't make you safer was after Katrina, when law enforcement broke down out there, people needed to protect their homes. You are a a strong gun control advocate. Has this changed your thinking? I mean, I'm thinking about those people at the festival. I imagine they were largely liberal, probably agreed with you and me about guns, and that made them easy pickings for the terrorists. What are your thoughts about guns in the age of being in war? Well, in that situation, it wouldn't have made one bit of difference. But I have read uh, an interesting story, and, and this is what I always think about, civilians who are armed is that if you're not trained and you're not coordinated you really have no chance of either defending yourself or turning it around but one of the really stories that's becoming famous already in israel is a, a young woman who was a trained soldier on here on her kibbutz when she heard that the there was an incursion taking place she coordinated and she got the people who had guns together and she got them to the right place geographically and as the terrorists arrived, they were met with a coordinated counterattack. And they were, I, the number I read, which is unbelievable, is 30 were killed at the gate to the kibbutz. So yes, they had, they had guns, but they also had training and they had somebody who could lead them. I think that makes a huge difference. We, we had a similar issue here in Ukraine because they were, you know, it was not a, I mean, I'll be honest, I'm actually a concealed carry the concealed carry holder in Colorado, but I also am a firearms trainer and I also believe in universal background checks and lots of other gun control things that would make me unpopular with the right. Um, and also the, the training is the necessary part of the responsible exercise of second amendment rights. There's, um, and in, in Ukraine when they were, I mean, I remember on you know, wall street journal article is actually a video uh, of handing out AK 47s and uh, AK 74, sorry. And, downtown Kiev, you know, a lot of these people had never held a gun in their life and you know, shooting each other in the foot and stuff. But, you know, there's got, I think there's, there's got to be a way to, if, you know, a government has responsibility to protect its people. Um, I had friends that made it, went through Katrina and, and if they can't, um, we've got to be able to find a way, the rational people on the right and the rational people on the left to, especially in these areas that are threatened, um, find a way to have 
responsible gun control and, and, you know, it may be biannual training requirements or, or ex-military or something like that. I can tell you that's going to be an issue when you, when Ukraine inevitably wins this war is that, you know, is keeping weapons, at least in military members who've had to go undergo uh, a thorough background check, you know, as a deterrent, as you know, I, I believe that the Swedish do that as well. But yeah, there's, I, we, there's, there's problems with, with the proliferation of guns in the United States, but man, I, I do think that uh, if you, like you said, if you have training and, and that's, that's a, that it will have a military deterrent effect on the, the planning of Hamas, I can tell you. And um, But also, it's good to have training. I mean, especially when you're looking at that woman who organized that defense, that's a small unit tactic that requires command and control and, and, and some pretty thorough training. So it's an interesting question. It, it really, I think, will be right for discussion once we get this, um, this, this issue resolved militarily. Now, I wonder when you guys walk around the streets, how do you identify who the enemy is? Are you suspicious of everybody? I'm thinking in Ukraine, I can't tell really the difference between a, the way a Russian looks or a Ukrainian. And in Israel, I'd be hard-pressed to say who's Arab, who's Jewish. Kenny, uh, as you look at Arabs who you encounter now, is it going to be different? And what has been the reaction in the Arab cities inside of Israel? Well, that's a good question, Craig, because I was actually thinking the same thing on Saturday when this was happening, and I went into my local grocery store, and most of the clerks uh, that work there are from Arab communities surrounding Herzliya. And I I wondered how they were feeling, and I, I didn't have a chance to ask them, but I really wanted to. It's, you know, when you have this mixed situation like this, we... the. I'm a person that believes in coexistence, and I'm a person who believes that most people just want to have a life that is better for their children than the one that they had, and that's what they're striving for. They're not there to hate and to kill. But there is, we know, obviously, that there is a small number who carry that in their hearts. In Israel, you know, something like 70% of the population goes into the army at the age of 18 and goes through basic training and serves for two to three years. And then they're on reserve duty where they have to report and continue their training throughout the course of the year. So that's a very unusual society that's not comparative to anything in America. Where We have a large number of trained people who are trained in how to use a weapon. Um, I'm not expecting them to carry those weapons down the middle of, of neighborhoods or the shopping mall or the grocery store to think because just in case something might happen uh, but after this attack on on civilian communities over the border i i think we don't know what the future holds as far as attitudes towards arming arming the population i think we just don't know how do you deal with hey, that so in ukraine the, yes go ahead john yeah so to address that it, it's it's hard i mean you know there's People out here who, you know, Russian and Ukrainian is used somewhat interchangeably out east, although people who used to speak Russian are now just refusing to do it <laughs> for obvious reasons. But what you run into are people who are, you know, collaborators. And it's just a constant problem where you have, you know, people who are uh, our SBU, which is our counterintelligence service in Ukraine, is constantly arresting people who are trying to provide targeting information or helping the Russians. Uh, the Kramatorsk, which is where our station a couple of weeks ago, 
Um, you know, there was the pizza, uh, the pizzeria, which is one of the only restaurants in town. There was something like 50 people killed by a cruise missile. And that was, again, that was somebody who had pro-Russian leanings um, who provided that targeting information and was arrested by the SBU a couple of days later. So the, the answer is you never know. And um, we have to check out people. And you know, we live in a house for a couple of weeks. We have to move around a lot. If we go to the trenches or the woods, that's easier. But, you know, you have to be careful and wary about everything. Um, it could be anybody. It could be, you know, an, an older gentleman who thinks he'll get a better pension if Russia takes over Ukraine. It could be a younger person who, you know, uh, thinks he'll get a, gets a bribe for, uh, you know, the Russian GRU. Uh, so it, it's a problem and there's no easy solution to it. Um, I think the only thing is, is that Putin is every time... The amount of war crimes and the fact that they've touched everybody. We have a a guy who's a handyman who works on our house, and they just found his father's body after about a year, um, and he'd been tortured to death. And you know, you just hear stories like that. And it, the brutality of Russia has touched on pretty much everybody in these communities. That's really the only saving grace that pretty much everybody has some animosity against them. But it only takes one or two people to provide targeting information on a house that you're sleeping in for a night or a couple of days. No real way around it. Um, just hope for the best. We've already brought up religion and you volunteered your own, John. Let's stay with you for a second while Kenny thinks about it because he and I are Jewish. You're a Christian. Is there a religious role in what's going on uh, in this fight between Russia and Ukraine? Yeah, I, I think there is. I, I mean, first, most fundamentally, the Orthodox Church of Russia is used as a religious, it's used as a puppet, a propaganda puppet um, by um, Vladimir Putin. So it, whether the question to that answer is practically speaking, absolutely. Um, you know, for me personally, you know, uh, when you sit around a table in the dark woods of Ukraine and near the front and you can hear gunfire and explosions, you look across the table at people that you've trained with from for you know weeks or months and know that they're going into the front lines and they may not come back um i it's hard not to have uh inner discussion with yourself and with your god you know this is i obviously you know believe in the afterlife and and, and those things but i think fundamentally right and wrong as as the guide comes from God, um, whatever your religion may be. And, and uh, there's no way around it for me that this is absolutely where God stands, you know, for Israel and where God stands for the people of Ukraine and, and for liberty and self-determination. And I mean, it's been hell on earth, the things that have happened. I mean, think about the number of Ukrainian children that have been kidnapped. Um, it's thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. It's almost unimaginable. And, um, you know, every single one is a tragedy in and of itself. Um, and you look at a state like Israel, which is people don't realize that because it's such a has such a powerful military and such a strong voice and it's such a strong democracy. It's a very geographically small place, and it doesn't have as many people as you would think for its outsized influence and power. Um, as I believe is a moral leading leading light for the world. Um, and so, what they suffered proportionally is an incredible loss. And um, you know, my hearts go out to them and. And they're definitely my prayers. The one time I went to Israel, Kenny Toltz, I was on the radio. I got to interview some bigwigs, a retired general. I said, 
And this was right after a coordinated attack by Hamas and Hezbollah, but on a much lower scale. But it was scary for many weeks. And I went in the aftermath, and I asked the general, you know, it's not Yasser Arafat anymore. You're facing Hamas, which is a religious party, Hezbollah, the party of God. You now have religious zealots against you, dedicated to the fact that Jews should be eliminated. Why don't you talk about that? And he said, well, that would be a holy war, and those things last 100 years, and everybody gets killed. Kenny, the role of religion in all of this, isn't that what Hamas is, a hateful religious ideology? Which really has no uh, place in Islam. So, you know, Israel itself has 2 million Arab citizens, and in the West Bank, there's another 2 million more Palestinians. Hamas is successful in a small enclave called Gaza, and they're really successful through terror. So I, I don't think that we have Islamic fun, a problem with Islamic fundamentalism uh, as far as what Israel is facing locally. Now, on, on the borders, in some of the, you know, this, this is what is really very interesting about the possible relationship with Saudi Arabia. If Saudi Arabia makes it okay, or is, is uh, the number one Islamic country to have a, a direct peaceful relationship with Israel, does that affect Islam at large, the millions and millions that are in this region of the world? I don't know. But I don't. I think that most Israelis don't view this as a religious war. They they certainly view Israel as the Jewish state, and internally we have a lot of battles between the various se segments of the Jewish religion here. But externally, they feel it's more anti-Zionism, uh, anti anti-presence in the Middle East. And that's what we've been fighting for all these years, and that was starting to get to be resolved. But there's still the rejectionist group that base their rejection, they you know, on religious beliefs is right. what they that they're calling it because they're able to recruit people. Yeah. Some of them are a bunch of bigots too. That certainly didn't help. And I know you spoke out against it, but the right wing in Israel, it's terrible. What's their response been to this war? Are they sending their kids to serve now? The ultra religious. Yes. Never. 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 No, their kids are, are in, in this world to study the Torah and have babies. And they feel that the state of Israel should subsidize their lifestyle. Well, that's um, a problem. It's, it's, it's a minor problem, but it's growing into a bigger demographic problem every day. I went to my synagogue, Temple Sinai, over the weekend, and then I as per usual, walked over to your synagogue, the Alliance, and they were having quite a, a celebration of Simcha's Torah. And I don't go there that often because I'm not a great Jew. But as you know, they finish reading the Torah and then they start over and they bring out liquor and the teenagers are celebrating with bunting and they're singing Simmentop and Mazel Top and Mazel Top and Simmentop. Remember how that song ends with Yechelanu uh, and a mention of Yisrael? You probably know it. You speak Hebrew. You remember what that song means? 
Uh, you're reminding me, but I don't remember. It means may may auspicious signs and good luck be with us and all of Israel. And all of Israel. We need mazel. Yeah, we need luck. Yeah. Um, I think you're an excellent Jew, by the way, Craig, and you may not be the most observant Jew, but I think you set an amazing example for other Jews, especially in the media. Because you're outspoken in your pride of being Jewish, and you do a, a great job of upholding that in, in all your conversations. So, I wouldn't, I would never describe you as not a good Jew. Um, I, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I'm not a Jew, but there seems to be many facets to being a, a good Jew, and one of them is, is again the the moral leadership that I see from Jews is, as as a Christian. Um, you know, I look up to the people in, in your in your religion and, and to Jews generally, and I, uh, Craig, I think you've Really appreciate the the words for Ukraine and 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 for Israel uh, and get, you know the the basics of right and wrong, which these days most people don't do, and um, that means a lot. So those voices, those words will be remembered by history. I promise you. Well, yeah, we're living through history. Did we just witness the start of World War Three, or did that start in Crimea in twenty fourteen, or when they tried to take Kiev? How does it feel to you, John Jackson? You know, that's a great question. Um, I There's an author named John Sweeney who wrote a book called Killer in the Kremlin, and he's been in Kiev uh, since the start of the war. Um, and he, uh, it's a great book. He's written other ones against Putin and about Russia. But, you know, his argument, and I think it's the correct one, is World War III started a long time ago when they were taking, you know, the Russian GRE was taking Novichuk uh, nerve gas poison and poisoning British citizens, uh, Russians who became British citizens, um, you know, in London, um, that's using a weapon of mass destruction to kill the citizens of another country. And, you know, uh, when Iran is funding uh, Hamas attacks, training them, providing the backing uh, and the guidance for that, and I'm confident that we will find that there was this is not something where Hamas planned and did and trained themselves. This was a fairly complex operation, uh, at least for them. Um, you know, you don't just go from a military perspective to doing suicide bombings and, and those kinds of attacks to this sort of complicated air, land, sea uh, situation. Iran and Russia have been at war with the West and with Israel. And, you know, not all wars have, you know, Russia fighting American tanks, you know, uh, on the uh, on the steps of Eastern Europe. Um, some of these wars look like they do now. They may be proxy wars, but they're real and people are really suffering. And it's got all the, the indicators of what a war is. And, you know, we need to get in the West. We need to get our head around that and understand that and treat it like it is. Yeah. And he used Prigozhin to attack our elections, right? The Internet Research Group. Mueller indicted him. He was a wanted guy and then eventually killed by Putin. But they've no doubt been meddling in our elections. Ken Toltz, what needs to happen? To me, we need to get the leaders, just like World War II. Hitler needs to die. I think Putin needs to go away. Ismail Hamnia, the the head of uh, Hamas. There's a history of Israel carrying out such missions, how do you see this resolving in a successful way? Can Hamas exist anymore? Oh, I, I don't think the Israeli people are going to be satisfied if there is uh, any inkling whatsoever that they are could reconstitute Hamas on the borders of Israel. 
this this is like exactly the way Americans thought after 9-11 about the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. They have to be rooted out and destroyed. And that's exactly how Israelis feel right now. If that how they do that tactically is I, I have no idea. I'm not a military person. I don't know if that would be even if that's possible or doable, considering that they live among a population of a couple million Palestinians. So how do you root them out and destroy them in that without a huge amount of collateral damage of civilians? That's always been the, the big problem of what to do about Hamas in Gaza. Uh, but th- this is one of those events that you say changes everything. This is one of those events that changes everything for Israelis. It's a test of a new generation. Uh, it's a test of the resilience of the Israeli people. It's a test for the IDF in how they handle the areas that they didn't succeed in protecting the Israelis who live uh, around Gaza. It's a huge test for the political uh, establishment. What do they do with it, with our failed prime minister? How do they deal with him? Uh, it's a test of our relationships, Israel's relationships around the world. Um, uh, you know, Bibi Netanyahu made a speech at the UN General Assembly a couple of weeks ago. No one stayed to listen to him because no one wants to know and cares what he has to say, which is very sad for Israel to have, have a prime minister that cannot marshal any uh, of, of the international community to Israel's cause. Now, today we're seeing the international community coming to Israel's to support Israel. And I think Joe Biden is the one who's actually marshalling the support. I, it's definitely not Bibi. Right. So we're you know very happy to have when we're very fortunate to have Joe Biden sitting in the U.S. president's office who can do that and knows what needs to be done. Uh, I understand, you know, he's given more than one public statement, and I think he's doing another one even today. Yes. Um, and and you know what he's doing is he's doing the job of standing with Israel that we would hope that is the Israeli prime minister could do is marshal the world opinion on our side. You brought up right. sorry. You know, with, with, go ahead. Yeah, I agree. I just wanted to say with respect to I think those are all great comments, and I, I don't and I agree that I don't. To me, Hamas just cannot continue to exist, and it, it maybe it's a. You know, it's not maybe it's not one of those problems that has an end destination where we say, okay, a year from now, they're done, we're done with it. You know, listen, people talked about how long we were in Afghanistan and then they pulled out a little bit, I think, too fast, especially pulled out. And I don't want to criticize Biden because that was a deal Trump made, you know, the Doha right. agreement. Um, but, um, you know, there we weren't losing anybody. We were there for you know, a while. But whenever, but when somebody complains about military conflicts taking too long, it makes me think of how long have we had troops in South Korea? And so if you think about that, and nobody thinks we shouldn't do that. I mean, look at the, they call it one of the, uh, I think it's the four Asian tigers that after World War II, you look at, you know, Singapore, Japan, South Korea, uh, and Taiwan, how those vibrant democracies and, and you know, uh, and the economics of those those countries have taken off and, and helped the world. Um, it's it, sometimes these problems take they're consistent problems and they continue to happen. And, but we have to continue to deal with them. Um, and I think it's just going to have to happen with Hamas. I mean, they absolutely cannot exist, even if it's an ongoing issue uh, that they have to continue pouring resources into. Um, because 
Uh, that, that's just my personal view. So I know, but, 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 but it's sort of um, tough. Isn't it like identifying a Nazi or Antifa? Isn't it just an attitude you have? There's no formal sign-up post. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm sure for the leaders, you can identify them. But if it's in somebody's heart that, hey, I, I believe in a form of Sharia law where the Jews need to be killed, how, how do you get rid of that? That's a complex problem. Um, you know, people like, uh, that's a counterinsurgency problem, but hey, people can believe whatever they want. That's probably a freedom they're allowed to have, but uh, it's, you know, as long as, you know, you know when they're picking up a weapon, uh, whether or not that's belief is formed into negative action. Um, County, but yeah, that's yeah. that's a hard question. Well, County, you know, brought, yeah, yeah. well, but let's go to Ken because he brought up Saudi Arabia. There was some hope that if Saudi has made peace if the Saudis made peace, then uh, then then maybe there could be peace in the region. But I, I see that as a pipe dream. I I saw the way Mohammed bin Salman slapped hands with Putin in 2018 after he killed Khashoggi. Those guys are sociopaths together. I think it's a pipe dream to think that Ben Salman, who thrives on fossil fuel, and Putin, who does the same. They're not going to give it up. They like autocracy. Really, Kenny, can you put trust in Saudi Arabia? Look at their reaction to what just happened. It's terrible. No, I think you're right. I don't put trust in Saudi Arabia. Um, but I do have this um, hope that if they find a way to recognize Israel, it makes it uh, somewhat more acceptable for Islam in general. To, to not reject Israel as a foreign presence in the Middle East, as, as, as Jews as a foreign presence. That's been the basis of their rejection of Israel mm -hmm. for 75 years, is that Jews are a foreign presence, and this is a region of Islam. Uh, so if the number one most influential Islamic country makes a agreement to recognize Israel and have, rela have normal relationships with Israel, that's, it's got to help. Yeah, but it would benefit Joe Biden, which we know Donald Trump doesn't want, and Kushner and Trump are in bed with Saudi Arabia. They made that first trip there. I think the best way to get at all of this is through the normal topic on Craig's Colorado Corner, and this is my best hope, Jack Smith and Tanya Chutkin. Ken, take your mind off the war for a minute. Think about litigation. Um that's what we were going to talk about, the cases against Donald Trump, the view from Israel. And I still think that if the criminal justice system can come through, maybe the, the dominoes will fall. That's my hope. What's the view from Eretz Israel? Well, uh, you know, obviously, you're as a former prosecutor, you still have faith in the American judiciary and system of justice. This yeah. is what we've been marching in the streets in Israel for for 40 weeks is to protect Israel's judiciary and system of justice to protect democracy. And that's what Americans are depending on, the judiciary to deal with Donald Trump's illegal lifestyle. His entire life is a fraud. What if they don't? I know. But even as it comes out in New York that his whole life's a fraud, I see the timing of things. I... I don't think it's coincidental. As Trump gets unwound, as pal Putin says, hey, launch this, do that, 
Am I getting too conspiratorial, John Jackson, or do you see a connection? <laughs> Almost nothing surprises me these days. So um, I, I definitely wouldn't surprise me. Uh, nothing would surprise me. I'll, I'll, I'll put it at that because this is, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene is one of the leading voices of the Republican Party. And so, I don't know, when you throw that out there, it's uh, we're in cuckoo land. Um, and so... And I feel like, you know, uh, I'm in a part of the world where every day is a twilight zone, just for various reasons. So uh, who knows? God, I love that <laughs> smile. Yeah, me. but I'm looking at that smile on your face, and it's great. And the <laughs> takeaway comment I have from you is the way the war will end. I was going to ask you, but I already heard your answer, which is we win, they lose. Am I right? Yeah, 100%. Uh, and nothing can stop us. It's only a matter of time. Um, you know, uh, I believe in the people of Ukraine. I believe in the soldiers of Ukraine. I'm with them every single day. Um, the way that they uh, they must win, uh, because if they lose, then, then evil wins. It's it's unthinkable. And I think if we go back to one point I wanted to think for both of you guys is, if you go back to the speech that was given in the, the movie The King's Speech, um, and I'm this name is uh, slipping my mind at the, the moment. But if you look at the speech that was in that movie, The King's Speech, um, given just before World War II, uh, there's a line in that speech. If you go back and read it, it's it's incredible how you could apply those exact words to history now. Um, but he says in that speech, uh, it is unthinkable that we would, should fail to meet the challenge. And that's how I feel about where we are now. And I'm sure the people of Israel feel the same way as to the challenge uh, that they, they face now. Um, I have confidence in the people of Israel and the young people of Israel to rise to the challenge. And, uh, and I know the people of Ukraine, uh, being stubborn and hard people, will will meet the challenge here, and they've proven it so far. Beautifully said. Absolutely. The last word is yours, Ken Toltz from Israel. Please tell us what we can do and uh, know that my podcast is open to both you guys all the time. I can't tell you how much I value your input. And your courage. Is Israel going to survive and win this war? Ken Toltz, please tell me that you will. No, absolutely. I don't think there's a question about it. Um, I, I want to say, Craig, I really admire what John is doing in Ukraine. It's off the charts, uh, unselfishness, and in the tremendous American spirit to step up and help where help is needed. Um, and, you know, Craig, you and I are baby boomers. John, I think, is of the next youngest generation. And that's that's what has to happen right now is these next generations have to step up and make the difference. And I, I think that the Israeli generation got a huge, the, the young generation got a huge shock of what just happened. And what I uh, today I was seeing uh, soldiers getting on buses all over because they called up over three hundred thousand reserves. They put on their uniforms. They go to work. That's what they do. And the in Israel, um, I'm hopeful that that will when when you know not only this situation but on the long term in the political. Uh, realm as well that will replace this failed generation of pol political leadership in Israel and bring up 
and which is I thought the protest movement was doing. And I was, as you know, I was been optimistic all year long that this protest movement was activating a new generation of leadership and that they were eventually going to move into the political arena and take over. And that's what we need to have, have happened here. Um, so I, I, th- I think that trend continues. I, I still have reason for optimism, but it's a very, very, very painful time. And as I said before, all expressions of support are greatly appreciated, tremendously helpful. Craig, I really appreciate you um, hosting me today and having letting me talk. Um, I feel just a little bit better just being able to get it out. So thank you very much. Thank you, guys, very much. Stay safe. And um, I'm proud of you guys. I admire you very much. And keep writing. These guys are both must-followers on social media. Ken at Ken Toltz and John Jackson at His Goes Cobra. Am I right, John Jackson? Yeah, that's right. We talked about that being from the, the Bronx Zoo's Cobra that used to be on Twitter. And that's because uh, I didn't get on Twitter until... Uh, that's the only Twitter affiliation or <laughs> knowledge of Twitter I had. So that's why I picked it. At His Goes Cobra. Right. And let's use Elon Musk as long as we can to communicate. Because I think communication is the key. Our ideas, our thoughts are better than theirs. Let justice prevail. Thank you, fellas. Thank you so very much. Well, thank you, too. Thank you very much, Craig. Appreciate Bye-bye. you guys both. Bye, John. Bye-bye. Be safe. All right. Thank you, you too. And uh, prayers for your, you in Israel. Prayers you for you, much. too, John. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. He's the best lawyer I know because he's my lawyer. He's Michael Bailey. I think you pioneered this mobile estate planning, and lots of lawyers are doing it now. And boy, are your clients happy and satisfied. It's convenient for the client. It certainly is fun to be able to go visit people where they are, whether it's at your house or at one of the offices, just to make it more convenient for you. And then it's more fun for me because I get to go out and about and meet people all over the place and help them out. What's the website, Michael? It is mobileestateplanning.com. What's the best phone number to call? 720-394-6887 is my direct line. Michael Bailey. That's our lawyer. Trish loves him. I do too. Thanks, Michael. You're welcome, Craig. Wow, what a show. Thank you, John Jackson. You are so brave, Ken Toltz. I thank the world of you. We need these kind of discussions. They won't be possible if we have guys like Putin take over. Autocracy kills freedom. That's why I think they did it on Simcha's Torah. They don't want the kind of freedom, human freedoms expressed in that document and espoused by the Jewish people. And so they had to kill it, sort of like Twitter. I think Musk and others are trying to kill that deliberately because some people want us to live without freedom. This show is about preserving freedom. Stay strong. This next show, I have Rabbi Bruce Dahlin lined up for episode 176, my regular Saturday morning, 9 a.m. show. I like it if you subscribe on Apple, five stars, please. I really appreciate you listening. Tell a friend, please subscribe. Let's pray for Israel. Let's pray for some mazel, some luck.
We all need good luck. Maybe we need the Mashiach, the Messiah. Maybe we need some divine intervention. That would be nice, too. Right about now, this show dedicated to the memories of those who have perished. May their memories be a blessing somehow. Thank you. That's the show. We hope you liked it. Please subscribe. Tell your friends. Leave a five-star review. Thanks for listening.